Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey, strangers. Welcome to another This Week in Crime. So before I get into This Week in Crime, I have two cases that are still coming from the Spree Killers um, episode. I didn't want to do a part three because, to be honest with you, I'm kind of tired of doing the Spree Killers and I want to do something different. So I haven't really done um, anything in quite a while in the vein of paranormal. So I figured, I think the last episode I did was The Haunting of Jackie Hernandez. So if you're a new listener and you haven't yet heard that episode, go ahead and give it a listen. Um, That was still when I was fairly new. So, I mean, I haven't changed all that bit. I'm still kind of shitty anyways. But um, so I decided that the next episode for Monday's episode is going to be the Enfield Poltergeist. So if you aren't too familiar with that case, the Enfield Poltergeist, stay tuned for that episode so you can learn all about the spookiness, the spoopy that is the Enfield Poltergeist. Having said that, let's get into the last two cases that I have of the Spree Killers saga, I guess you can say. The first case is of the Las Vegas shooter, which I'm sure most of you are still familiar with that case as it happened fairly recently. Stephen Craig Paddock was an American mass murderer responsible for the 2017 Las Vegas shooting, in which he opened fire into a crowd of approximately 22,000 concertgoers attending a country music festival on the Las Vegas Strip. The incident is the deadliest mass shooting by a lone shooter in United States history, with 58 fatalities, excluding Paddock, and 851 injuries, including over 400 by just gunfire alone. Paddock was born in Clinton, Iowa. The family lived in Clinton at the time. He grew up in Tucson, Arizona and the Sun Valley neighborhood of Los Angeles as the eldest of four sons of Benjamin Paddock, his father. Benjamin was a bank robber who was arrested in 1960 when Stephen was seven years old. Benjamin was later convicted and escaped prison in 1969, subsequently appearing on the FBI's most wanted list. So at least to say... The, op- the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. According to Stephen's brother, they never really knew their father as he was never really home or around. Sad. Oh, man. Paddock worked as a letter carrier for the U.S. Postal Service from 1967 to 1968. After that, he worked as an Internal Revenue Service agent until 1984. Then he was a federal auditor for one year in 1985, focusing on defense contractors. Toward the end of the 1980s, Paddock worked for three years as an internal auditor for a company that later merged to Lockheed Martin. He is known to have run a real estate business with his brother Eric. He lived in the greater Los Angeles area and owned personal property in areas including Panorama City, Cerritos, and North Hollywood from the 1970s to early 2000s. He also owned two apartment buildings in Hawthorne, California. In addition, he owned an apartment complex in Mesquite, Texas, which he sold in 2012. Paddock was married and divorced twice. He first married from 1977 to 1979, and for the second time from 1985 to 1990, both marriages in Los Angeles County. Family members say he stayed on good terms with his ex-wives. His brother Eric said that Stephen had no political or religious affiliations of any kind. However, his last ex-wife and Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo reported that he was a Trump supporter, and his ex-wife also said he was an atheist. Why does that matter? I don't know, but I just thought it was a a little bit 
of an interesting thing to get a little bit of his, I guess you can say, get a little bit of his mindset, um, I guess you could say. So, leading up to the shooting, during his last months, Paddock reportedly smelled of alcohol from early morning and appeared despondent. He was reported to have filled three prescriptions for the anti-anxiety drug Valium in 2013 and again in 2016. And finally, 50 tablets of 10 milligrams each in June of 2017, four months before the shooting. The chief medical officer of the Las Vegas Recovery Center said the effects of the drug can be magnified by alcohol, as confirmed by Dr. Michaels First, a clinical psychiatry professor at Columbia University. During an interview with local CBS affiliate KLAS-TV, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo said Paddock had reportedly been losing a significant amount of wealth since 2015 of September, which led him having bouts of depression. Paddock's gun purchases spiked significantly significantly between October 2016 and September 28, 2017, just two days before the shooting. He purchased over 55 firearms, the majority of them rifles, According to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, he also purchased a number of firearm-related accessories. Prior to that, he purchased approximately 29 firearms between 1982 and September 2016, mainly handguns and shotguns. At his suggestion, two weeks before the attack, his girlfriend went to her native country, the Philippines. Paddock bought her a surprise airline ticket and soon after wired her $100,000 to buy a house there. He was spotted in Las Vegas with another woman, reported by investigators to be a prostitute. It has been confirmed that she was not an accomplice and was not considered a suspect. Her name has not been released. Two days prior to the shooting, Paddock was recorded by a home surveillance system driving alone to an area for target practice located near his home. In a jailhouse interview with an unemployed chef who claimed that he had offered to sell Paddock schematics for automatic firearms, the chef said that Paddock had spoken of anti-government conspiracies and had claimed FEMA's actions after Hurricane Katrina were a dry run for law enforcement and military to start kicking down doors and confiscating guns. The man went on to say he thought Paddock was another internet nut, you know, watching too much of it and believing too much of it. So <laughs> basically, he's like, um, who's that other shooter? There's another shooter. I don't think it was a Churchland shooter. I was going to feature him too, but this is just too much. But um, there was another person who did who committed a mass shooting and believed that it was just a way for them to take our guns away. And if you really think about it, that's so stupid because you're basically just doing what they the, you're giving them more reason to want to take the guns away by committing what you're committing. It's a more it's going to give them more reason to believe like yeah that's why you shouldn't have guns because of people like you. So they're fucking stupid. On the night of October 1st, 2017, at 10.05 p.m., Paddock opened fire from his hotel room onto a large crowd of concertgoers at the right Route 91 Harvest Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip, killing 58 people and wounding 851 others. Paddock meticulously planned the attack. On September 25th, six days before the shooting, He checked into a room on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel with 10 shooting range bags and a computer. On September 29, he moved into another suite connected to the first one. Both rooms overlooked the festival grounds. 
He stayed in both in the days leading up to the shooting. After Paddock killed himself, the police found 23 rifles and one handgun inside his rooms. They included 14.223 caliber AR-15 type rifles and eight 308 caliber AR-10 type rifles, one 308 caliber Ruger American Bolt action rifle, and one 38 caliber Smith & Wesson Model 342 revolver. All very expensive, according to law enforcement source. His arsenal included a large quantity of ammunition in special high-capacity magazines, holding up to 75 or up to 100 cartridges each. Some of the rifles were resting on bipods and were equipped with high-tech telescopic sights. All 14 AR-15 type rifles were outfitted with bump fire stocks that allow semi-automatic rifles to be fired rapidly, simulating fully automatic gunfire. Audio recordings of the attack indicated Paddock used these stocks to fire at the crowd in rapid succession. At some point during the attack on the concertgoers, Paddock, who had placed a baby monitor camera on a service car outside his room, fired about 200 rounds through his door. The shots wounded approaching hotel security guard, Jesus Campos. The unarmed Campos had attempted to enter the 32nd floor first at 9.59 p.m. <clears throat> on an unrelated matter, but he found the door to the hallway screwed shut by Paddock. At 10.05 p.m., Paddock began firing thousands of rounds in rapid succession at the crowd below. He stopped shooting 10 minutes later at 10.15 p.m. It is unclear why. According to chronological, chronologically of the events established by the authorities in the following days, the first two police officers reached the 32nd floor of the hotel at 10.17 p.m. A minute later, they were shown the location of his door. Between 10.26 and 10.30 p.m., an additional eight LVMPD officers joined them and began clearing other suites along the 32nd floor hallway. At 10.55 p.m., eight SWAT team members entered the 32nd floor through the second stairwell nearest to Paddock's suite. Once all the other rooms on the floor had been cleared, at 11.20 p.m., more than an hour after the first two officers arrived, and 65 minutes after Paddock had ceased firing, the police breached his door with an explosive charge and entered the room. Paddock was found dead inside his suite from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. In addition to the firearms and accessories found in Paddock's hotel room, there was a note that included handwritten calculations about where he needed to aim to maximize his accuracy. The note contained the actual distance to the target, his own elevation, and the bullet trajectory relative to the line of fire. There were also a number of laptops in the suite, one of which was missing a hard drive. Computer forensics discovered hundreds of in images of child pornography. I never knew that. We'll learn something together. Coincidentally, his brother Bruce was arrested in North Hollywood on charges of possessing over 600 child pornography images. Ammonium nitrate, often used in improvised explosive devices, was found in the truck trunk of his car, along with 1,600 rounds of ammunition, 50 pounds of a binary explosive used to make explosive targets for gun ranges. However, investigators clarified that while Paddock had nefarious intent with the material, he did not appear to have assembled an explosive device. An additional 19 firearms were found at his home. According to police, Paddock acted alone. His motive remains unknown. 
The Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant claimed responsibility, but United States law enforcement officials have given no evidence of a connection between Paddock and the ISIL. There have been some discussion around brain pathology initially thought to be a benign as possible contributor. Paddock's remains were sent to Stanford University to receive a more extensive analysis of his brain. The Stanford pathologist found no abnormalities present within the brain. The investigators believe that he was obsessed with cleanliness and possibly had bipolar disorder. Although a doctor did offer him antidepressants, he only accepted anxiety medication. The doctor also prescribed Paddock as odd. I'm sorry. The doctor also described Paddock as odd and showing little emotion. Psychologists ex post facto have noted a distinct similarity between Paddock's demeanor and the psychological psychological construct alexthemia. An alexthemia is a personality construct characterized by the subclinical inability to identify and describe emotions within the self within yourself. The core characteristics of alexithemia are marked dysfunction in emotional awareness, social attachment, and interpersonal relating, which might have modulated his decision to conduct the shooting given its association with various mass murderers throughout history. It was reported that he was fearful of medication and often refused to take it. Thus ends the case of Stephen Paddock who later killed himself within that suite. Well, I mean, he didn't later. He was already dead at this point, but you know what I mean. Moving on to the next case. Everybody, everybody should be familiar with this. And, and you kind of already know how I feel about these two. And it kind of goes the same for everybody. Um, But there's so much to dive into this one. So forgive me if I skip over certain things, because I mean, We don't really need to go over every little bit of it, but I will try to do my best to get the gist and the, and just hit the, the reach the, the, the the important parts. So, and this one that I'm speaking of is the Columbine massacre. The Columbine high school massacre was a school shooting that occurred on April 20th, 1999 at Columbine high school in Columbine, an unincorporated area of Jefferson County, Colorado near Littleton in the Denver metropolitan area. The perpetrators, 12th grade senior students, Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, murdered 12 students and one teacher. 10 students were murdered in a library where the pair subsequently died by suicide. We all know the story of this, but for some reason, we all go back to it, which why I don't know. In 1996, 15-year-old Eric Harris created a private website on America Online. Anybody remembers that? I remember that. It was initially to host levels WADs Harris created for use in the first-person shooter video games Doom and Doom 2. A lot of people, after this incident occurred, blamed Doom and Doom 2 as one of the reasons that Dylan and, and, and Eric did this, which I really hate. I really hate it. And I really loved how um, the creators of South Park when they finally did their show, they they talked. They didn't talk about directly the Columbine shooting, but they talked about it, especially in their movie about South Park, uh, South Park, South Park, bigger, better, longer, and uncut. They always talked about it and poked fun that they're not allowed to cuss or say certain words, um, and the NPAA was like really heavily like censoring them. 
and they even make a joke about it too in the movie where it's like <clears throat> they say oh you can say um you can show people like being decapitated you can show like graphic violence towards women or just graphic violence in general but god forbid that you can say naughty words <laughs> i always thought that on the site harris began a blog which included jokes and his thoughts on parents school and friends it also detailed Harris sneaking out of the house to cause mischief and vandalism, such as lighting fireworks with his friend Dylan Claybold and others. The mascot of Columbine High School is the Rebels, and he called these Rebel Missions. Harris and Claybold adopted the nicknames Reb and Vodka, respectively. <clears throat> Beginning in early 1997, the blog postings began to show the first signs of Harris's anger against society. By the end of the year, the site contained instructions on how to make explosives. Harris wrote, The first true pipe bombs created entirely from scratch by the rebels, Reb and Vodka. Now our only problem to find the place that will be ground zero. Oh, so edgy. Harris' sites attracted few visitors and caused no concern until March 1998. Harris ended a blog post detailing murderous fantasies with all I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people like Brooks Brown, a classmate of his at the time. Brown's claims Claybold gave him the web address in an effort to warn him of Harris's threats of violence against him. Others suggest it was a fact discovered by Brooks' brother Aaron Brown in 1997. After Brown's parents viewed the site, they contacted the Jeffco Sheriff's Office, when investigators Michael Guerrero accessed the website, he discovered numerous violent threats directed against the students and teachers of Columbine High School. Guerrero wrote a draft affidavit requesting a search warrant of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb in February of 1998 and a suspicion of Harris being involved in the unsolved case. The affidavit was never filed. So we could have done something possibly, but... At this time, school shootings happened, but I felt like they happened so few and far between that not a lot of people took kids serious. People, I felt like teachers were just like, oh, it's just kids being kids. I remember when I was angry. Just, people were just really naive sometimes. And now because school shootings are such the norm that we're just constantly in fear and thinking of ways to combat these fucking people. And it's sad. On January 30th, 1998, Harris and Klebold broke into a van parked near Littleton and stole tools and computers equipment. Both were caught by a policeman shortly afterwards, arrested, and subsequently attended a joint court hearing where they pled guilty to the felony theft. The judge sentenced them to attend a juvenile diversion program. As a result, both attended mandatory classes such as anger management and talked with diversion officers. Harris also began attending therapy with a psychologist and was prescribed antidepressants by a psychiatrist. They both were eventually released from diversion several weeks earlier because of positive actions in the program and put on probation. Harris continued his scheduled meetings with his psychologist until a few months before the massacre. In Harris's yearbook for 1998, nearly a year before the massacre, Klebold wrote, Killing enemies, blowing up stuff, killing cops. My wrath for January's incident will be godlike. Not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons was another term for the school cafeteria. 
Harris and Klebold both kept journals, which were released to the public in 2006. In the journals, the pair would eventually document their arsenal and plan of attack. Shortly after the court hearing for the van break-in, Harris reverted his website back to just posting user-created levels of doom. He began to write his thoughts down in a journal instead. It shows a long period of methodical preparation for the massacre. Harris even wrote on his computer about escaping to a foreign country after the attack or hijacking an aircraft at Denver International Airport and crashing it into New York City. Claybold had already been writing down his thoughts since March of 1997 and as early as November 1997. Claybold mentioned going on a killing spree. Both Harris and Claybold were enrolled in video production classes and kept five videotapes shot with school video equipment. Only two of these, Hitmen for Hire and Rampart Range, and part of a third have been released. The remaining three tapes detailed their plans and reasons for the massacre, including the ways they hid their weapons and deceived their parents. Most of these were shot in the Harris family basement and are known as the basement tapes. 30 minutes before the attack, they made a final video saying goodbye and apologizing to their friends and families. In December 1999, before anybody else had seen them, the Time magazine published an article on these tapes. The victim's family members threatened to sue Jeffco. As a result, select victim families and journalists were allowed to see them, and they were then kept from the public indefinitely for fear of inspiring future massacres. The tapes have since been destroyed. There are only transcripts of some of the dialogue and a short clip recorded subreptuously by a victim's father. The pair claimed they were going to make copies of the tapes to send to news stations, but this did not occur. When an economics class had Harris make an ad for a business, he and Claybold made a video called Hitman for Hire on December 8th of 1998, which was released in February of 2004. It depicts them both it depicts them as part of the trench coat mafia, a clique in the school who wore black kind of dress rehearsal, who wore black trench coats, extorting money for protecting preps from bullies. They were apparently not a part of the trench coat mafia, but were friends from some of its members. They wore black trench coats on the day of the massacre, and the video seemed kind of dress rehearsal, showing them walking the halls of the school and shooting bullies outside with fake guns. On October 21st, 2003, a video was released showing the pair doing target practice on March 6, 1999, in nearby foothills known as Rampart Range, with the weapons they would use in the massacre. In the early morning hours before the massacre, Harris left a microcassette labeled Nixon on the kitchen table. On it, Harris said, It is less than nine hours now, placing the recording at sometime around 2.30 a.m. He went on to say, People will die because of me, and it will be a day that will be remembered forever. In the months prior to the attacks, Harris and Claybold acquired two 9mm firearms and two 12-gauge shotguns. Harris had a High Point 995 carbine with 13 10-round magazines and a Savage Springfield 67H pump action shotgun. Claybold used a 9x19mm in-track Tech 9 semi-automatic handgun with one 52 and 132 and 128 round magazine and a Stevens 311D double-barreled shotgun. 
Harris's shotgun was sawed off to around 26 inches, and Claybold shortened his shotgun's length to 23 inches, a felony under the National Firearms Act. Both Harris and Claybold held part-time jobs at local blackjack pizza through Philip Duran, a co-worker. Claybold bought a Tech 9 handgun from Mark Maines for $500 at another gun show on January 23rd and Maines Maines' girlfriend. And Duran are all in the Rampart Range video. After the massacre, Maines and Duran were both prosecuted. Each was charged with supplying a handgun to a minor in possession of a sawed-off shotgun. Mans and Duran were sentenced to a total of six years and four and a half years in prison, respectively. In addition to the shootings, the complex and highly planned attack involved several improvised explosive devices, using instructions obtained via the internet and the anarchist cookbook. They constructed a total of 99 bombs. <clears throat> These included pipe bombs, carbon dioxide cartridges filled with gunpowder called crickets, <clears throat> Molotov cocktails, propane tanks converted to bombs, car bombs, and divisionary bombs. For ignition, they used kitchen matches and model rocket igniters, as well as timing devices built from clocks and batteries for, for the propane, car, and diversion bombs. During the massacre, they carried lighters as well as match strikers taped to their forearms to light the pipe bombs and crickets. They had 45 crickets, 8 of which detonated and 9 Molotov cocktails, 2 of which functioned. Harris also attempted to make napalm and envisioned a kind of backpack and flamethrower. They both attempted to get another friend and co-worker Chris Morris, who was part of the Trenchcoat Mafia, to keep the napalm at his house, but he refused. Harris also tried to recruit him to be a third shooter, but would play it off as a joke when rebuked. Basically, he would just walk up to be like, hey man, you want to um, kill all these kids? Like, do you ever feel like you want to just kill all these kids and stuff? And he'd be like, yeah, really? You do? Yeah, yeah, but not really, man. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm just joshing, bruh. I'm just joshing. Like, imagine just the cringiest shit. That's pretty much how it went down. <clears throat> According to their journals and videos, the pair hoped that after detonating their homemade explosives in the cafeteria at the busiest lunch hour, killing hundreds of students, they would shoot and stab and toss bombs at survivors fleeing from the school. Then, as police vehicles, ambulance, fire trucks, and reporters came to the school, bombs set in the boys' cars would detonate, killing these emergency and other personnel. This did not happen. Since the bombs in the cafeteria and cars failed to detonate, Several official resources claimed they planned to shoot the fleeing survivors from the parking lot, but moved to the staircase on a hill at the west side of the school when the bombs failed. Other sources claimed the top of the staircase where the massacre began was their preferred spot to wait for the bombs to go off. On Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, Harris and Claybold placed two duffel bags each containing propane bombs in the cafeteria set to explode at 11.17 a.m. during the A-lunch shift. Two propane bombs were also placed in the cafeteria's kitchen. No witness recalled seeing the duffel bags being added to the 400 or so backpacks already in the cafeteria. The security staff at Columbine did not observe the bags being placed in the cafeteria. A custodian was replacing the school security videotape as it happened around 11.14 a.m., some internet sleuths claim that the bomb placement can be seen on the security video around 10.58 a.m., 
Shortly after the massacre, police also investigated whether the bombs were placed during the after-prom party held the prior weekend. A Jeffco Sheriff's deputy, Niall Gardner, was assigned to the high school as a full-time, I'm sorry, uniformed and armed school resource officer. Jesus. Gardner usually ate lunch with students in the cafeteria, but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the Smoker's Pit in Clement Park, a meadow adjacent to the school. Two backpacks filled with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of Columbine High School and two miles south of the fire station, set to explode at 11.14 a.m. The bombs were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, causing a small fire, which was quickly extinguished by the fire department. Bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs and relayed to police at the school the possibility of devices with motion activators. At 11.10 a.m., Harris and Claybold arrived separately at Columbine High School. Harris parked his vehicle in the junior student parking lot, and Klebold parked in the adjoining senior student parking lot. The school cafeteria, their primary bomb target with its long outside window wall and ground-level doors, was just north of the senior parking lot. Above the cafeteria, the second story of the window wall, was a library. Each car contained bombs timed to detonate at 12 p.m. As Harris pulled into the parking lot, he encountered Brooks Brown with whom he had recently patched up a long-standing series of disputes. According to Brown, who was in the parking lot smoking a cigarette, he was surprised to see Harris, whom he had earlier noted had been absent from a class test. Harris seemed unconcerned, commenting, It doesn't matter anymore. Harris went on, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown, feeling uneasy and already prepared to skip his next class, walked away. Several minutes later, students departing Columbine for the lunch break observed Brown heading down South Pierce Street away from the school. Meanwhile, Harris and Klebold armed themselves, hiding weapons beneath black trench coats with straps and webbing, and carrying backpacks and duffel bags filled with pipe bombs and ammunition. Harris also had his shotgun in one of the bags. Beneath the trench coats, Harris wore a white t-shirt which read, Natural Selection in black letters as well as a homemade bandolier. Claybold wore a black t-shirt which read Wrath in red letters. The cafeteria bombs failed to explode. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they could have killed or severely wounded all of the 488 students in the cafeteria, and possibly made the ceiling collapse by destroying the pillars holding it up, dropping the library into the cafeteria. At 11.19 a.m., A 17-year-old Rachel Scott was having lunch with friend Richard Costaldo while sitting on the grass next to the west entrance of the school. Claybold threw a pipe bomb towards the parking lot, which only partially detonated. Thinking the bomb was no more than a crude singer prank, Costaldo did not take it seriously. Several students inside the school during the attack also believe they were watching a senior prank at first. A witness reported hearing go, go before they pulled their guns from beneath their trench coats and began shooting at Calstado and Scott. Scott was killed when he, when she was hit four times with rounds fired from Harris's carbine, 
one shot was to the left temple. Castaldo was shot eight times in the chest, arm, and abdomen, and paralyzed below the chest, falling into unconsciousness. Harris aimed his carbine down the west staircase toward three youths, 15-year-olds Daniel um, Robro and Sean Graves and 16-year-old Lance Kirkin. The three friends had been ascending the staircase directly below the shooters. All three were shot, and Robord was killed. In the cafeteria, Dave Sanders, a teacher and a coach at the school, became aware of the gunfire and began warning students. The shooters turned and began firing west in the direction of five students, sitting on the grassy hillside adjacent to the steps and opposite the west entrance of the school. 15-year-old Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but ran and escaped. 16-year-old Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and leg and fell to the ground, where he fiend death. The other three escaped uninjured. Klebold walked down the streets toward the cafeteria and shot the already dead Rorboro with his shotgun. He came up to Lance Kirkin, who was already wounded and lying on the ground, weakly calling for help. Klebold said, sure, I'll help you, then shot Kirkland in the face with his shotgun, critically wounding him. Sean Graves has descended, had descended the staircase when the shooter's attention was diverted by the students on the grass. Graves, paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria's west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. After shooting Kirkland, Klebold walked towards the cafeteria door. He then stepped over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembers Claybold saying, Sorry, dude. Claybold only slightly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people still inside. Officials speculated that Claybold went to check on the propane bombs. Harris was still on top of the stairs shooting and severely wounded and partially paralyzed 17-year-old Anne-Marie Halter as she tried to flee. <coughs> Claybold came out of the cafeteria and went back up the stairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to a soccer field, but did not hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof, very few of which detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Jeez. Meanwhile, inside the school... Patty Nelson, an art teacher, had noticed the commotion and walked toward the west entrance with a 17-year-old student. Brian Anderson. She had intended to walk outside to tell the two students to knock it off, thinking they were either filming a video or pulling a student prank. As Anderson opened the first set of double doors, they shot out the windows, injuring him with flying glass glass, and hitting Nelson in the shoulder with shrapnel. I felt like I said glass weird. Anderson and Nelson ran back down the hall into the library, and Nelson alerted the students inside to, to the danger, telling them to get under desks and keep silent. She dialed 911 and hid under the library's administrative counter. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, and hid inside an open staff break room. Harris removed his trench coat at 11.22 a.m. The custodian called Deputy Nell. Gardner, the assigned resource officer to Columbine, on the school radio, requesting assistance in the senior parking lot. 
The only paved route took him around the school to the east and south on Pierce Street, where at 11.23 a.m., he heard on his police radio that a female was down and assumed she had been struck by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot at 11.24 a.m., he heard another call on the school radio, Neil, there's a shooter in the school. Harris, at the west entrance, immediately turned and fired 10 shots from his carbine at Gardner, who was 60 yards away. As Harris reloaded his carbine, Gardner leaned over the top of his car and fired four rounds at Harris with his service pistol. Harris ducked back in back behind the building, and Gardner momentarily believed that he had hit him. Harris then reemerged and fired at least four more rounds at Gardner, which missed and struck two parked cars. Before retreating into the building, no one was hit during the exchange of gunfire. Gardner reported on his police radio, shots in the building, I need someone in the south lot with me. By this point, Harris had shot 47 times and Claybold just five. The shooters then entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the main north hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered. Claybold shot Stephanie Munson in the ankle. She was able to walk out of the school. The pair then shot out the windows to the east entrance of the school. After proceeding through the hall several times and shooting toward and missing any students they saw, they went toward the west entrance and turned into the library hallway. Deputy Paul Smoker, a motorcycle patrolman for the Jeffco Sheriff's Office, was riding a traffic ticket north of the school when the female down call came in at 11.23 a.m. Taking the shortest route, he drove his motorcycle over grass between the athletic fields and headed toward the west entrance. When he saw Deputy Scott Tarboski following him in a patrol car, he abandoned his motorcycle for the safety of the car. The two deputies began to rescue two wounded students near the ball fields when another gunfight broke out at 11.26 a.m. As Harris returned to the double doors and again began shooting at Deputy Gardner, who returned fire, from the hilltop, Deputy Smoker fired three rounds from his pistol at Harris, who again retreated into the building. As before, no one was hit. Inside the school cafeteria, teacher Dave Sanders and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallatine, initially told students to get under the tables then successfully evacuated students up the staircase leading to the second floor of the school. The stairs were located around the corner from the library hallway in the main south hallway. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as he could. By now, Harris and Claybold were inside the main hallway. Sanders and another student were down at the end of the hallway, where he gestured for students in the library to stay. They encountered Harris and Claybold, who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and the student turned and ran in the opposite direction. Harris and Claybold shot at them both, with Harris hitting Sanders twice in the back and neck but missing the student. The latter ran into a science um, classroom and warned everyone to hide. Claybold walked over towards Sanders, who had collapsed, to look for the student but returned to Harris up the north hallway. Sanders struggled toward the science area, and a teacher took him into a classroom where 30 students were located. Due to his knowledge of first aid, student Errant Hansi was brought to the classroom from another by teachers despite the unfolding commotion, with the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and teacher Teresa Miller. Hansi administered first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting to stem the blood loss using shirts from students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. 
Using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with police outside the school. As the shooting unfolded, Patty Nelson talked on the phone with emergency services, telling her story and urging students in the library to take cover beneath desks. According to transcripts, her call received by a 911 operator at 11.25 a.m. In the library were a total of 52 students, two teachers, and two librarians. Two bombs were thrown into the cafeteria, both of which exploded. Another bomb was thrown into the library hallway. It exploded and damaged several lockers at 11.29 a.m. The gunman entered the library. Harris yelled, get up, so loudly that he can be heard on the 911 recording at 11.29 a.m. Claybold then shouted, everybody get up now. Harris fired his shotgun twice at a desk. A student named Evan Todd had been standing near a pillar with the shooters entered when the shooters entered the library and had just began begun hiding behind a copier. Todd was hit by wood splinters in the eye and lower back but was not seriously injured. Todd then hid behind the administrative counter. The shooters walked into the library toward rows of computers. Claybold said, I've been waiting for this for a long time. A disabled student, Kyle Velasquez, 16, was sitting at the north roll. Police later said he had not hidden underneath the desk when the shooters had first entered the library, but had curled up under the computer table. Claybold shot and killed Velasquez with his shotgun, hitting him in the head and back. The shooters put down their ammunition-filled duffel bags at the south or lower row of computers and reloaded their weapons. They walked between the computer rows toward the windows facing the outside staircase. Claybold shouted, Everybody get up! We're going to blow this library up. One of the gunmen stated, This is our revenge, and this is for all you who put us through this last year. Claybold shouted, All jocks stand up. When nobody stood up, Harris said, to get the guys in white hats. One of them said, anybody with a white hat or a sports emblem on it is dead. Wearing a white baseball cap at Columbine was a tradition among sports team members. Several, several students tried to hide their white hats. Noticing police evacuating students outside the school, Claybold said, pigs are here, and Harris said, let's go kill some cops. They shot out the windows in the direction of the police. Officers returned fire, and the gunmen retreated from the windows. No one was injured. Claybold then removed his trench coat and shouted, Everyone with a white cap stand up. When no one stood up in response, he said, Fine, I'll just start shooting, and fired his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring three students, Patrick Ireland, Daniel Steepleton, and Mackay Hall. Harris walked toward the lower row of the computer desk with his shotgun, firing a single shot under the first desk from a short distance away. While down on one knee, he hit 14-year-old Stephen um, Cornell with a mortal wound to the neck. He then walked closer, got on one knee, and shot under the adjacent computer desk, injuring 17-year-old Casey Rugseeger with a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder and hand, also grazing her neck and severing a major artery. When she started gasping in pain, Harris tersely stated, quit your bitching. Harris walked over to the table across from the lower computer row, slapped the surface, surface twice, and knelt, saying peekaboo to 17-year-old Cassie Bernal, before shooting her once in the head, killing her. 
Harris had been holding the shotgun with one hand at this point, and the weapon hit his face and recoil, breaking his nose. He told Claybold he had shot his nose, and Claybold responded, Why'd you do that? After fatally shooting Burnell, Harris turned toward the next table where Bree Pasquale sat next to their table rather than under it. Harris's nose was bleeding heavily. Witnesses later respond, reported that he seemed disoriented and had blood around his mouth. Harris asked Pasquale if she wanted to die, and she responded with a plea for her life. Harris laughed and responded, Everyone's gonna die. When Claimbold said, Shoot her, Harris responded, No, we're gonna blow up the school anyway. Claybold noticed I, um, I, I, <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, it's just... Could you imagine, like, just being in that situation, how fucking terrifying that is? You're at the mercy of these two psychotic kids and, it, like, these teenagers. And, and it's, it's, just, it's just fucking so crazy just to imagine being in that situation and just having to just know that your life is just going to end right here, right now. It's just astounding to me. After fatally shooting Burnell, Claybull noticed Ireland trying to provide aid to Hall, who had suffered a wound to his knee. As Ireland tried to help Hall, his head rose above the table. Claybold shot him a second time, hitting him twice in the head and once in the foot. Ireland was knocked unconscious, but fortunately survived. Claybold walked toward another table where he discovered 18-year-old Isaiah Scholes, 16-year-old Matthew Ketcher, and 16-year-old Craig Scott, Rachel's younger brother, hiding underneath. Claybold called to Harris. Um, I don't, I get, I'm going to say it, but please know that I'm simply saying this because I'm just reiterating exactly verbatim what Claybold said to Harris. Claybold called to Harris, there's a nigger over here, and tried to pull Shoals out from under the table. Harris left Pasquale and joined him. According to witnesses, they taunted Scholes for a few seconds, making derogatory racial comments. The gunmen both fired under the table. Harris shot Scholes once in the chest, killing him, and Claybold shot and killed Ketcher. Though Scholes was not shot in the head, Claybold said, I didn't know black brains could fly that far. Meanwhile, Scott was uninjured, laying in the blood of his friends, fiending death. Harris then yelled, who's ready to die next? He turned and threw a cricket, remember when we talked about those, the crickets, at the table where Hall, Steepleton, and Ireland were located. It landed on Steepleton's thigh. Hall quickly tossed it behind them and it exploded in midair. Harris walked toward the bookcases between the west and centered section of the tables in the library. He jumped on one and shook it, apparently attempting to topple it, then shot at the books which had fallen. Claybold walked to the east area of the library. Harris walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Claybold. The latter shot at a display case located next to the door, then turned and shot toward the closest table, hitting and injuring 17-year-old Mark Nitkin in the head and shoulder. He then turned toward the table to his left and fired, injuring 18-year-old Lisa Krutz. Lauren Townsend and Valen Schnur with the same shotgun blast. Claybold then moved toward the same table and fired several shots with the Tech-9, killing 18-year-old Lauren Townsend. At this point, the seriously injured Val Valine Schnur began screaming, Oh my God, oh my God, 
In response, Claybold asked Schnur if she believed in the existence of God. When Schnur replied she did, Claybold asked why and commented, God is gay, before walking from the table. Jesus. Harris approached another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down to look at them and dismissed them as pathetic. Harris then moved to another table where he fired twice, injuring 16-year-olds Nicole Nowlin and John Tomlin. Tomlin moved out from under the table. Claybold then shot him repeatedly, killing him. Harris then walked back over to the other side of the table where Townsend lay dead. Behind the table, a 16-year-old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Brie Pasquale, sat next to the table rather than beneath it due to a lack of space. Harris shot Fleming with the shotgun, hitting her in the back and killing her. He shot at the table behind Fleming, hitting Townsend, who was already dead, and Crutes again, and wounding 18-year-old Jenna Park. The shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at a table. Harris then pointed his carbine under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved out of the way. Harris turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, an acquaintance of Claybold's. He asked Claybold what they were doing, to which he shrugged and answered, killing people. Savage asked if they were going to kill him. Possibly because of a fire alarm, Claybold said, what? Savage asked again whether they were going to kill him. Claybold said, no, and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance. After Savage left, one of the gunmen stated that, this is what we've been waiting for all our lives. Harris turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where they had been, hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Mauser. Mauser reacted by shoving a chair at Harris. Harris fired again and hit Mosser in the center of his face at close range, killing him by breaking his neck. Both shooters moved south and fired randomly under another table, critically injuring two 17-year-olds, Jennifer Doyle and Austin Eubanks, and fatally wounding 17-year-old Corey DePooter. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I know that's mean, but his last name is funny. <laughs> DePooter was later credited with having kept his friends calm during the ordeal. He was la- he was the last to die in the massacre at 11.35 a.m. There were no further victims. They had killed 10 people in the library and wounded 12. Of the 56 library hostages, 34 remained unharmed. Investigators would later find that the shooters had enough ammunition to have killed them all. Throughout the library massacre, the gunmen seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like Yahoo after shooting. At this point, several witnesses later said they heard the shooters comment that they no longer found a thrill in shooting their victims. Claybold was quoted as saying, maybe we should start knifing people. That might be more fun. They moved away from the table and went toward the library's main counter. Harris threw a Molotov cocktail toward the southwestern end of the library, but it failed to explode. Harris then went around the east side of the counter and Claybold, Claybold joined him from the west. They converged close to where Todd had moved after having been wounded. Claybold pulled out a chair, pointed his Tech-9 at Todd and commented, Look what we have here. Harris seemed disoriented from his broken nose and asked, What? Claybold responded, just some fat fuck. Todd was wearing a white hat. Claybold asked if he was a jock, and when Todd said no, Claybold responded, well that's good, we don't like jocks. 
Claybold then demanded to see his face. Todd partly lifted his hat so his face would remain obscured. When Claybold asked Todd to give him one reason why he should not kill him, Todd said, I don't want trouble. Claybold responded back angrily, Trouble? You don't even know what the fuck trouble is. He also remarked, You used to call me a fag. Who's a fag now? Todd tried to correct himself. That's not what I meant. I mean, I don't have a problem with you guys. I never will, and I never did. Claybold then spoke to Harris. I'm gonna let this fat fuck live. You can have, you can have him. You can have at him if you want. It's almost like these guys tried to live like a, a movie in a sense. If you if you really think about it. it, it's almost playing off like a fucking movie, like a fucking stupid, like '90s movie. Where they're either the villains or the heroes. They're sort of like anti-heroes in, in their fantasy of a movie. And that's what it sounds like. <clears throat> Harris did not pay much attention and said, Let's go to the commons. Claybold turned and fired a single shot into an open library staff, hitting a small television. Before they left, Claybold slammed a chair down on the top of the computer terminal and several books on the library counter, directly above the bureau where Patty Nelson had hit it. The two walked out of the library at 11.36 a.m., ending the hostage situation there. Cautiously fearing the shooter's return, 34 uninjured and 10 injured survivors began to evacuate the library through the, door, the north door, which led to the sidewalk adjacent to the west entrance. Casey Rusiker was evacuated from the library by Craig Scott. Had she not been evacuated at this point, Rusiker would likely have bled to death from her injuries. <clears throat> Patrick Ireland, unconscious, and Lisa Krutz, unable to move, remained in the building. Patty Nelson joined Brian Anderson and the three library staff in the exterior break room into which Claybold had earlier fired shots and locked themselves in. After leaving the library, the gunmen entered the science area, where they threw a small Molotov cocktail into an empty storage closet. It caused a fire, which was extinguished by a teacher hidden in an adjacent room. The gunmen proceeded toward the south hallway, where they shot into an empty science room. At 11.44 a.m., they were captured on the school's security cameras as they re-entered the cafeteria. The recording shows Harris kneeling on the landing and firing a single shot toward one of the propane bombs left in the cafeteria. In an unsuccessful attempt to detonate it, as Claybold approached the propane bomb and examined it, Harris took a drink from one of the cups left behind. Claybold lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane bomb. They left the cafeteria at 11.46 a.m. As the Molotov cocktail exploded, the gallon of fuel attached to the bomb ignited, causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire sprinklers. By the fire sprinklers. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the main north and south hallways of the school, shooting aimlessly. They walked through the south hallway into the main office before returning to the north hallway. On several occasions, they looked through the windows of classroom doors, making eye contact with students hidden inside, but they never tried to enter any of the rooms. They taunted students hidden inside a bathroom, making such comments as, We know you're in there, and let's kill anyone we find in here, but never attempted to enter the bathroom. At 11.55 a.m., they returned to the cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned up the stairs and into the south hallway at 11.58 a.m. They re-entered the library, perhaps to watch their car bombs detonate, which had been set to explode at noon, 
but which failed. <clears throat> the library was empty of surviving students except for the unconscious Patrick Ireland and the injured Lisa Krauts. Once inside at 12.02 p.m., they shot through the west windows at police who returned fire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.08 p.m., both gunmen had killed themselves. In a subsequent interview, Kreutz recalled hearing a comment such as, You in the library, around this time. Harris sat down with his back to a bookshelf and fired his shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Claybold went down on his knees and shot himself in the left temple with his Tech 9. An article by the Rocky Mountain News stated that Patty Nelson overheard them shout one, two, three in unison just before a loud boom. Nelson said that she had never spoken with either of the writers of the article, and evidence suggests otherwise. Just before shooting himself, Claybold lit a Molotov cocktail on a nearby table, underneath which Patrick Ireland was laying, which caused the tabletop to momentarily catch fire. Underneath the scorched film of material was a piece of Harris's brain matter, suggesting Harris had shot himself by this point. In 2012, the National Enquirer published two photos of Harris and Claybold after, the after their suicides, showing both dead lying on their backs and the guns in seemingly curious locations, such as Claybold's right hand lying on his gun despite being left-handed, and leading to speculation that Harris shot Claybold before killing himself. The photographs were taken after SWAT had checked their bodies for bombs and booby traps and likely kicked Claybold onto his back. The placement of his blood and baseball cap suggests he died face down on Harris's legs. A total of 188 rounds of ammunition were fired by the perpetrators during the massacre. Harris fired nearly twice as much as Claybold. He fired his carbine rifle a total of 96 times and discharged his shotgun 25 times. Claybold fired the Tech 9 handgun 55 times and 12 rounds from his double-barreled shotgun. Law enforcement officers fired a total of 141 rounds during exchanges of gunfire with Klebold and Harris. And thus ends the saga of spree killers and the shoot. And yeah, um, just to go back on this, if you want a better like a better dive of the story of the Columbine massacre. I can't stress this enough. Last podcast on the left, they do an amazing, outstanding job. And obviously they're way better than I can ever be <laughs> at podcasting, but they do a, an episode of Columbine high school massacre. And they're a lot funnier, more entertaining than I. So if you want like a good, 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 good dive of the Columbine high school massacre, Go and check out, if you haven't already, Last Podcast on the Left and listen to their series. It's a three-part series of the Columbine High School Massacre because not only do they go into the, the events leading up to the shooting and then the shooting, they also talk about the aftermath of what happened um, to not only culture, to society, to basically what happened after we um, witnessed this atrocity. Um, and they actually kind of dive. They don't really go too much on the subject, but... Um, one of them talks about how there's a conspiracy theory around Columbine High School where I think it's either they believe Eric Harris was molested by some cult or something like that. And, and this is why they believe, well, one of them, I don't really think he's being serious, but it, it's funny, but he believes um, Eric or Klebold was um, molested 
by a secret underground like child like human trafficking cult and that's why he did this is because it was a way for him to like send a message like saying hey this is what they did to me type of thing i think he's joking but it's funny though just go ahead and listen to that episode so you can get like a really good dive of the columbine high school i touched on basically just the main shooting itself and dive a little bit into their background but if you want the full-fledged thing i basically gave you a trial if you want the full experience go and check out last podcast on the left in their episode dive well having said that let's jump into this week in crime so with the first article comes in um i was actually sent this from a listener and she has a podcast of her own she's actually a co-host of the podcast which they're actually having a give giveaway currently right now for reaching 1000 followers i know they're doing their giveaway a lot faster than i am i'm a procrastinator but uh uh she's part of a creep it real pod so thank you for sending me this or uh, making me aware of this news article so this one is humans need so but actually to press on their giveaway uh, go ahead and follow them at creep it real pod on instagram so you could take being part of their giveaway and you could win some cool shit man so anyways uh this one is humans need to do better an australian fisherman's viral shark bong draws outrage and death threats the man sits patiently on the deck of a boat as if waiting for a cue pounding pop music that sounds vaguely like the foreboding jaws theme song plays loudly in the background Suddenly, a child starts singing, and at the exact moment, the man ducks his head toward the object resting on his knees, a small shark that appears to be dead with two short pipes protruding from its body. Baby shark, do-do-do-do-do-do, <laughs> the child sings. God, fucking journalist. Um, the child sings as the man brings a lighter to the pipe, jutting out of the shark's head, inhaling deeply from the other one located behind its dorsal fin. Looking up, the man releases a billowing cloud of smoke, his head bobbing in time with the catchy rhythm of the hit child's children's song, Baby Shark. A grin slowly spreads across his boyish features. The 25-second clip, which was shared Sunday to an Australian Facebook page called Fried Fishing, has since gone viral, drawing such fierce, fierce backlash that the human subject of the video, identified only as Billy, announced Monday that he was leaving social media for mental health reasons. I never thought I'd have to do this, but today has become too much, a statement posted to Facebook read. The post said that the page, which has more than 25,000 followers and described itself as fried fishing, stupid shit banter about other fishermen, had been flooded with abusive messages, including death threats. The group also said the volume of complaints over what has been described as a shark bong even led to visit from police. <clears throat> A spokesperson from the New South Wales Police Force told I just dropped my phone. Told the Washington Post that the incident is not under investigation. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, which oversees fishing, did not respond to a request from a comment earlier Tuesday. A person associated with the fried fishing page told the post via Facebook Messenger that the man in this video is no longer able to comment, adding no one can contact him at the time being. The video, which had been watched more than 180,000 times before being taken down late Monday night, was swiftly condemned by marine biologists, conservation groups, animal rights organizations, and social media users, many shaming it as sickening and disgusting. A second video on the same page that showed another man smoking out of a dead fish was also deleted. 
And I believe that the reason why they're upset too is because of the fact that sharks are kind of an endangered species. And I mean, I don't know because to be honest, these sharks are cool and whatever, but I wouldn't want to be around them. I'm, I have like a huge fear of the ocean. <laughs> I'll go into the ocean, but I don't like being in open water. If I can't feel my feet on the ground, I'm terrified of it if I'm in the ocean because much of the ocean is very unexplored and we don't know what's out there. And it's just very creepy to me. So moving on to the next article, this is um, prosecutor says DNA proves man abducted, murdered 17 year old Marina Valley girl. So for those of you that don't know, I live in Marina Valley, California. And so this is kind of, obviously it's very close to me. <laughs> a 17 year old Marina Valley girl was abducted and killed more than eight years ago by a man whose DNA traces were left like calling cards on her belongings. Prosecutor told jurors Tuesday, while the man's attorney countered that the government's evidence is faulty and said none of the facts support a conviction. <clears throat> one of the saddest things in the world is the death of a child and one of the worst things in the violent murder of a child. Riverside County Deputy J District Attorney Michael Caress told the jury tasked with deciding the fate of the alleged killer of Norma Angelica Lopez. Norma was brutally ripped from the loving embrace of life and dumped like trash under a tree, he said. Without DNA, the mystery of her death would have been unsolved. But DNA shows that man kidnapped and killed Norma Lopez. Jesse Perez Torres, 42, could face the death penalty if the jury convicts him of first-degree murder and finds true a special circumstance allegation of killing in the course of a kidnapping. Caress recounted the events leading up to the girl's July 2010 abduction in a field around the corner from Torres, then residence at 13173 Creekside Way. <clears throat> the prosecutor said Torres could easily have observed the teen leaving Valley High School, Valley View High School, where she was taking a morning biology class for the summer. Caress theorized Torres watched the victim walk by multiple times in the three weeks before she was snatched. Every day that she'd previously left the Valley View campus, she had been with her boyfriend, Joshua Battis. But on July 15, 2010, he was behind schedule and Norma set off on her own. She headed south on Creekside East to Quail Creek Drive, then south again on Mill Creek Road before crossing an open field toward Cottonwood Avenue, where her older sister, Sonia Lopez, and friends gathered almost daily that summer. Cress played a security surveillance videotape from a house looking down on Creekside, and the recording captured the last images of Norma alive, walking the route. The tape also showed, moments later, a green SUV cruising slowly in the direction that she was walking. Shortly after 10 a.m., the vehicle reappears less than five minutes later, speeding away from the area. According to the prosecution, Taurus owned a green Nissan Xterra at the time. When Norma failed to arrive at the Cottonwood location by noon, her sister and friends headed into the field, intending to go to the Valley View campus to look for her. When they crossed the field, they discovered Norma's school binder, purse, and a broken earring strewn on the ground, leading to immediate concerns that she had been forcibly taken, at which point her sister begged a passerby to call 911. Sheriff deputies initiated a search, but when no clues regarding Norma's whereabouts turned up after two days and the weekend began, members of the community and her schoolmates formed their own search parties, distributing flyers bearing her photo and description. 
Five days later, Norma's remains were discovered in an olive tree grove at the edge of a residential property on sparsely populated Theodore Street, roughly two and a half miles east of where she was snatched. Her decomposing body was naked from the waist up, covered in insects, and bloated from the intense summer heat. Cress alleged that touch DNA samples were lifted from the earring fragments, Norma's jeans, her panties, and purse. He acknowledged the evidence was barely sufficient for the California Department of Justice to develop a partial DNA profile, but a private company with more sophisticated techniques was retained, and scientists there processed the forensic data and delivered a fuller profile of the donor. No matches were initially found in the state's combined DNA index system, better known as CODIS, but Caress said that changed by September 2011 when potential matches were identified out of the 1.8 million individuals with DNA profiles in the database. The prosecutor alleged that Taurus was the best match, culminating in his detention by sheriff's detectives, who found him at Long Beach property owned by his mother. Taurus had been required to provide DNA samples after a domestic violence conviction in early 2011. The defendant lies and equivates trying to explain away his actions on July 15, 2010. Caress said he offers a false alibi. Along with DNA evidence, the prosecutor alleged fibers emanating from a carpet exactly like the one in Moreno Valley House where Taurus resided were located on Norma's underwear. Defense attorney John Doerr repeat, repudiated the prosecution's connection that the DNA presented a substantive link between his client and the crime. There were 24 potential DNA matches, Dora told the jury. You will hear nothing about the other 23. Who are they? Or their criminal backgrounds. The attorney criticized the handling of the DNA collected from the earring, showing pictures of it in the field that suggested it had been moved at least twice, possibly by evidence technicians who, who could have contaminated it before sending it to be processed for forensic clues. There was no sound reason to move that piece of evidence, Dorr said. He also challenged the prosecution's theory that Torres, who stands 5 foot 3 inches and weighs 109 pounds, could manhandle the victim who was 5, who, who was five feet 7 inches tall and 110 pounds, wrestling her into the vehicle and controlling her, controlling her for however long necessary to commit the crime. It would have been impossible, Dorr said. This would have required several people. Oh man, scumbag lawyer. The defendant is being held without bail at the Robert Parsley Jail in Riverside, where he has been in custody since October of 2011. Challenges to evidence changes in defense teams and prosecutors involved in the case contributed to delays in bringing it to trial. Okay, so here's this next one. This next one is kind of fucked up. It's not fucked up in the sense that it's graphic. It's just fucked up because this chick is fucking bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. A Massachusetts woman who was convicted of coursing her boyfriend over text messages into killing himself will serve her full sentence following a ruling on Wednesday by the state's high court. Michelle Carter's 15-month sentence handed down in 2017 for involuntary manslaughter has been placed on hold as the Supreme Judicial Court reviewed her appeal. This followed the defense arguing that her verbal conduct was protected free speech under the Constitution's First Amendment and that Conrad Roy III's death in 2014 was caused by his own actions. The court ultimately affirmed that Carter's repeat urging of a vulnerable person to kill himself, even as he expressed reluctance, caused his death. 
The crime of involuntary manslaughter prescribes reckless or wanton conduct causing the death of another. The statute makes no reference to restricting or regulating speech, let alone speech of a particular content or viewpoint, the court stated in its ruling Wednesday. We are therefore not punishing words alone, as the defendant claims, but reckless or wanton words causing death. The evidence against the defendant proved that, by her wanton or reckless conduct, she caused the victim's death by suicide. The 22-year-old has been allowed to remain free while the court reviewed her case. Carter was 17 when she urged 18-year-old Roy, who was suicidal at the time, to kill himself with carbon monoxide from his pickup truck in a Fairhaven parking lot in July of 2014. When Roy had second thoughts about doing it, Carter texted him to get back in his truck and complete what he had set out to do. The Bristol County Juvenile Court heard, No more, no more pushing it off. No more waiting, she said at one point when she texted him. When Roy expressed concern about how his family would handle his death, Carter told him they will get over it and move on. Text messages shared by the Supreme Court Judicial Show. They won't be in depression. I won't let that happen. They know how sad you are and they know that you're doing this to be happy. And I think they will understand and accept it, she said. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. She was convicted of involuntary manslaughter in 2017 in order to serve 15 months of a 2.5-year sentence. Carter also faces a $4.2 million wrongful death lawsuit in Norfolk County Superior Court that was brought by Roy's mother. Jeez. So I, I hope that that fucking chick gets just the worst. <sighs> I can't believe she would do that. That's just so heartless, man. So heartless. <laughs> so this next article was sent to me by, of course, you know him, the man, the myth, the legend, Rocky the Collector. He's fucking amazing because he always sends me the, the these last three articles. I mean, these last two articles after this one, um, basically all from him. Most of these are always for him. So here we go. Um, when a mountain lion attacked him, a Colorado runner choked it to death. Trapped by the sharp claws and teeth of the mountain lion, a runner fought hard for his life to break free. Wildlife officials said he choked the animal to death. It's basically fucking Chuck Norris style. A man was running by himself Monday in the Horsetooth Mountain open space near Fort Collins, Colorado, when he heard something behind him. When he turned around, an 80-pound mountain lion attacked him. Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials said the young lion bit the runner's face and wrist, but he managed to break free and kill the lion in self-defense. Necropsy confirmed the animal was suffocated, officials said. On Tuesday, the lion, which was less than a year old, tested negative for rabies. The runner did everything he could to save his life. In the event of a lion attack, you need to do anything in your power to fight back, just as this gentleman did. I bet that dude's just like fucking pumped right now. Like he's probably like, yeah. Can you imagine? He's fucking choked the life out of a fucking mountain lion. <coughs> <laughs> The runner suffered serious injuries and was taken to a hospital, but has since been released, officials said. The trails at Horsetooth Mountain open space were closed to the public Tuesday after rangers encountered more mountain lion activity in the area. The Lemire County Department of Natural Resources said, rangers will, recess, rangers will recess the safety of the trails on Friday, the department said. Mountain lion attacks are not common in Colorado, and it is unfortunate that the lion's hunting instincts were triggered by the runner said Ty Petersburg. 
Area Wildlife Manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. This could have had a very different outcome. Fewer than 20 people have been killed in North America about my, about oh my god by mountain lions in more than 100 years, officials said. <clears throat> in Colorado, three people have been killed and 16 injured in mountain lion attacks since 1990. The lions tend to avoid humans, parks, and wildlife, officials said. In a Facebook post, Colorado Governor Jared Polis said that although the runner was able to kill the lion with his bare hands, others should try to stay away from lions and back away slowly if it's possible. Don't mess with Colorado trial runners, Polis said about the incident. <laughs> Jeez. Could you imagine, though, like, just trying to fucking, like, just take that mountain lion down? Oh, fuck. Okay, here's the next article. It is a Southwest Airlines flight from Hartford, Connecticut to Tampa, Florida, was forced to turn around mid-flight on Friday night after the pilot declared an emergency. Flight 1694 returned safely to Bradley International Airport at 9.11 p.m., an hour after it took off due to apparent depressurization in the cabin. Ambulances met the Boeing 737 at the request of the pilot and treated a number of passengers. Another reason why I don't want to fly. While there were no severe injuries, passengers complained of ear pain and other issues. Initial reports state that at least one passenger was bleeding from the ears. The pilot declared an emergency and reported a possible pressurization issue. Southwest Southwest Airlines provided a statement to Yahoo Lifestyle on the incident. This is where I'm getting the article from, yahoo.com. A flight 1694 with scheduled service between Bradley International Airport and Tampa Bay experienced a pressurization issue shortly after takeoff. Our flight crew followed proper procedures and returned to BDL, where, where it landed safely. The statement read, several customers among the 139 on board were treated for injuries and discomfort by local paramedics. We removed the aircraft from service and continued customers travel with another aircraft. The safety of our customers and crew is always our top priority. While decompression is rare, it is vital that both pilots and passengers react to sudden and gradual cabin de decompression quickly. That at 4,000 feet, people have just 18 seconds of useful consciousness if they lack oxygen, which is why flight attendants advise passengers during their safety announcements to put on their oxygen mask before helping others. Okay, so that makes sense. That's why they tell you to put it on before you. Interesting. And here is the last article of this segment, and it is a McDonald's customer calls police after employee puts onions on his Big Mac. And gets arrested. A McDonald's customer was arrested after calling police to complain about his Big Mac hamburger having onions and challenging the restaurant's manager to a fistfight. Leslie McDonough, 53, that's kind of funny that his name is McDonough, anyways, uh, was visiting the fast food chain in Manchester, England around 10.30 p.m. Really, I thought this was going to be like Florida or something. On a Friday, when he claims he received the wrong meal that he could not eat because of a severe allergy to onions. According to Metro, McDonough, who had been drinking prior to visiting the McDonald's, that explains it, threatened to fight the manager before calling police to report the mixed up meal. The incident began to escalate when police arrived and asked McDonough to leave the restaurant. McDonough reportedly fell to the floor and grabbed a police officer's leg as they attempted to stand him up. Police shared. McDonough also spit in an officer's face while they were taking him off the premises. 
Prosecutor Paul Summer told Metro that police had to restrain the man as they escorted him out. The police then were able to hold the defendant by his arms in the scuffle and escort him out of the store. The officers were struggling with the defendant and whilst they were doing this, he spat in one of the officers' face. He was arrested for being drunk and disorderly and insulting an emergency worker. McDonough was arrested for the incident which took place on December of last year and re recently appeared in court where he pleaded guilty to assault and being drunk and disorderly in public. Mann stated he had left a holiday party at his work and had consumed six cans of beer before visiting the McDonald's. McDonough admitted though through his defense attorney Claire Parrott that he should not have called the police but defended his food allergy saying he specifically asked for something to not be in his food and it was. He called police as he did as did the McDonald's staff, Parrott said. His memory of the incident isn't complete, but he was quite clearly utterly embarrassed and ashamed. This was not a planned attack on the officer. He says that he's not a violent person. <coughs> McDonough was ordered to pay two hundred and forty eight fine and sentenced to a twelve month community order plus one hundred and twenty eight hours unpaid work. This is not the first time fast food customers have called emergency services to report incorrect or unsatisfying orders. In July, a McDonald's customer called 911 over being served a cold burger and fries. More recently, a mother in the UK called police on Domino's after their pizza oven broke. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that's it. That's all the time we have for this week in crime. I hope you guys enjoyed the... The spree killings of the Columbine Massacre and um, the Las Vegas shooting. And I hope you guys enjoyed these articles. And so if you guys have an article and you want to send me something, you can either do so by following me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcasts, sending me, sending me the articles through there, um, through DM, or if you want to go through email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. Don't forget to follow Creep It Real Pod because they're currently holding a giveaway right now so if you want to earn some sweet swag and listen to two awesome ladies tell you stories about murder and other cool weird stuff then go follow them they're a lot better than i so you know i recommend it also um i'm gonna be doing the giveaway too as well i'm just i'm just kind of been lazy to be honest with you because i'm gonna i'm probably gonna end up just doing the same thing that i did on my last giveaway which was 200 followers <laughs> Um, so I'm probably just going to do it like that again. So I'll be posting that up soon. Um, also too, if you have a podcast and you're struggling to find new listeners or you just want to be featured in my podcast and help, you know, I want to help podcasts out because I had a lot of pod podcasts help me out. So if you're interested, just go ahead and send me an email at strange talk podcast at outlook.com. Or if you follow me on Instagram, just don't, don't be afraid to send me a message, you know, help each other out. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out something. So thank you again for listening to this episode of uh, This Week in Crime. And the spree killers continued because I'm over it now and I want to do something different, which is why next Monday's episode is going to be all about the Enfield poltergeist. So thank you for joining me again. And as always, stay strange.